We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and to look at your word and to see what you'd have us to learn. We ask that your spirit guide and lead us as we continue this uh, chapter in Ezekiel. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 16. We've been going through this, how Israel is being compared to a harlot, uh, that God has lifted her up and cleaned her up, given her all kinds of blessings, and then she gave away all of her blessings. So we're going to continue this uh, uh, thought here. We're going to be in verse 32. All right, verse 32. But uh, as a wife that commits adultery, which takes strangers instead of her husband, they give gifts to all whores, but you give your gifts to your lovers and, and hire them that they may come unto you on every side for your whoredom. And the contrary is in you with, uh, with other women in their whoredoms, Whereas none follow you to commit whoredoms, and in that you give a reward, and no reward is given unto you, therefore you are contrary. So we're looking at this. He's continuing the idea of them being harlots, and he's going, your, your whoredom's even worse than the normal. You're paying others to come in unto you. And you know this is kind of a strange thought, because they're going, they had God, and they're giving their gifts to the idols. So they're they're, they're paying the idols and worshiping these idols and, and giving away their rewards and not getting anything in return. And isn't that the way sin is within our lives? It takes everything from us and gives us nothing, really. But trouble, but trouble hassles, headaches. And yet sin will take everything that we have. We invest lots of money into a lot of our sins. We invest a lot of time into our, into our sin and take away from God, take away from the blessings that he has, and look at this, and it says, you know, you give gifts, you give the gifts. You know, and then he, it's kind of serious, very strong language. He goes, most, most whores sell themselves and get, get reward, and you're, you're giving away everything. You're giving, you're giving away your wealth in this place. And that's kind of a very strong statement. They're paying for them to be hired out. You know, that would almost be like somebody running a business and saying, uh, or going to work and saying, I'm paying to be able to work here. <laughs> and that's just not the way it's done. You don't go and pay to work someplace. You get paid for working there. And he's saying, you're, you're paying to get to work. And you know, this is really a very strong statement that God is saying. They're so far out there. And he's, and he's trying to draw their attention, saying, this is how far you are. And, but it's, unfortunately, we do that all the time with sin ourselves. We pay the price for sin. Think sometimes when we're doing it that we're enjoying it until we count the cost. Uh, I think of a lot of people, you know, with their alcohol and their drugs and stuff, they pay so much in alcohol and drugs and think they're enjoying themselves, and then they end up realizing that it's costing them more than anything that they're, whatever they think they might be getting, and the cost is so much higher. And it's not just those, it's true of all sin. All sin cost a great penalty, whether it's to us physically, emotionally, spiritually. It also affects our relationship between us and God, and oftentimes reflect, affects us and our family. When we sin, it affects family relationships as well. So sin has a great price, and yet we oftentimes are willing to pay that price for whatever until we hit bottom and say, well, why did I ever do this? Is this verbiage here an analogy of some sort, or is 
It's happening from God's perspective because God said that Israel is his wife. We've talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Israel was his wife, so when she went after idols, then she was committing adultery as far as God's concerned spiritually. And it's the same thing we do in our life so often is that we commit spiritual adultery by going after the idols in our life rather than God. Well, this whole book here, our book we've been reading, what is happening is, a lot of it is visions, but Ezekiel went in one of the early waves into Babylon. He's at a place where Israel's getting ready to be totally taken in the, in the third wave of captivity. And his message is against, you know, against what they're doing. Repent, basically saying repent. You're going to get what you deserve and this is what you've been doing. And he's describing what they've been doing. And all through Israel's history, we see them going after idols right from the very beginning. Uh, you can even go back even further. We can look at uh, uh, Rebecca taking her family gods out of, out of the home and Laban following after, after her. And, you know, uh, so we see it all the way, almost all the way back as far as we can you know, see in their life. And then we see them coming out of Egypt and immediately on Sinai, they're worshiping an idol. They're wandering in the wilderness and they end up you know, worshiping idols when Balak sends in the women and tempts them into worshiping the idols. So they're not pure even before they start. Then all the book of Judges is falling away into idolatry worship, going into judgment, coming back out. All through the kings, we see the same pattern uh, of falling into idol worship. Let me understand, the whole time that he's seeing all this, he's, he's uttering it to the people, making he's, them yeah, and this is just a parable here, a parable or a story to them of what, who, what they're being like. Well, still part of the vision. well, he's had visions before that. I don't think this was, he said this is a parable that he was telling them at this point. Oh, okay. This isn't a vision. He's not seeing all of this. This is just, he is expressing to them in a story that they can understand their relationship that they're having with God. Yeah, and in this case, it says, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, son of man. Huh? That's very first, the very first of this chapter. It's a parable. It's a story so that they can understand their relationship with, as God sees them. So, because what ends up happening is, a lot of times, when we do the same thing, and when we violate our life spiritually, we don't really think of the spiritual as being real, unfortunately, because we're flesh and blood. So we kind of forget this idea that what goes on in the spirit world is probably more real than, than, in what we, uh, than what we experience as real life because it's eternal. And yet we totally ignore it because we don't see it. And thus, it being a parable, it could say something like a horror. Nor, and this is often what happens in a parable. Usually, usually it gets twisted around from the expected. And he's saying the, the person who commits whoredoms gets paid. And you're, you're giving yourself away. You're paying them to come into you. And that's not even the way the harlot, harlot or the whore operates. Well, it certainly would have caught their attention. And it should catch their attention. It's like Jesus' stories. You know, when Jesus tells parables... Most of his parables that he tells are very popular parables, like the prodigal son. 
It's a story that everybody knew. You know, the father, the father would reject his son. The son would come to his senses, come back to the father and say, you know, I want to be your, be your servant. Only problem is when it got to that point, Jesus turned the story on its head because usually the parable went, the father accepts him back as a servant. And Jesus said, no, he accept, the father accepts you back as a son. Okay, so many of the parables, Jesus kind of turned on their heads. To, but it grabs your attention. It would be us listening to a fairy tale and all of a sudden they twist the fairy tale so that it doesn't say what we were always, always used to and it's saying and going, what, what did you just say? You know, the, you're kind of not really paying attention to it and all of a sudden the story gets twisted in a new direction and it's like, that'll grab your attention. This is what this story is, to grab your attention. Yeah. You know, you've, you, you've been mistreated, you've been bad all this time and by the way, you're so bad that you're paying others <laughs> to come in unto you. And that's what he's saying on this one. Verse 35, wherefore, harlot, wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness discovered through your whoredoms with your lovers and with all the idols of, of your abomination and by the blood of your children, which you did give unto them. Behold, therefore, I will gather all your lovers with whom you have taken pleasure and all them that you have loved and all them that have that you have hated and will even gather around again about against you and will discover your nakedness unto them that they may see all your nakedness. So here is God's judgment on them. He's going to say, basically he's saying, be sure that your sin will find you out. He's going to say, I'm going to gather everybody that you've committed this sin with, those that you've loved, those you've hated, all of them, and I'm going to put it on display. And they're going to see everything. Why? Because of the filthiness. Because of the fact that they've shed the innocent blood of their children. And we talked about this several weeks ago. Part of the worship of their gods was to sacrifice their children. And that was a big part of idol worship was to kill, kill the children. Because it's satanically motivated and Satan is trying to destroy uh, people. And he says, because you've done all of this, I am going to put you on display the whole captivity was put them on display and judge them, but also put them on display. And God still does that to this day when his children sin. If we will not repent and turn away from our sin, God will put our sin on display. And if you're somebody who has quite a bit of reputation and, and standing in the church, then you will get your sins put on display to a very high level. We think of different evangelists who have gone into adultery thinking they could get away with it for whatever reason. And then basically it gets shared with everybody that they ever reached out to because God's not going to let his children sin and get away with it. Well, those statements are hard too, you know. They were so perverse, you know. Why would him just reminding them uh, have any effect on and unfortunately, it's not having an effect on them. He's basically laying the story. This is what you've done. This is how you've done it. This is why you're doing it. And here is going to be the result of it. And unfortunately, when we get into sins, the deep sins, and we're pulling away from God, it sometimes takes quite a tragic shock to us to be able to draw us back to God. Most cases, it takes something hard to bring us back and kind of makes people, you know, usually we'll shake our reputation because we're standing in our own reputation, how good I am. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians will do that over the years when they walk with God, you know, hey, <clears throat> look at me, I've got, I've got my act together. I don't, 
I don't drink or smoke or do drugs or, or go out and do all these things, you know, and they're list, list, long list of, you know, look at me. And God will say, uh-uh, we're not going there. Oh, many of them tried to play both cases. They would go to the synagogue and church, the temple on, on uh, the Saturday and, and offer all their sacrifices. They would pretend to be, be good Jews, and then they would go out and, and they would go out and worship idols. Some of them, some would just plain worshiped idols and didn't, didn't worry about going to the temple at all. They, they do pretty much what Christians do. You've got certain ones who say they're Christians and fall away completely and just go completely into sin and, and bad. You've got those who play the game. You know, I go to church every Sunday. I'm a good, uh, or maybe even be Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You know, I'm, I'm at church all the time, but, but their life is, as they live it outside is totally ungodly. But we see that frequently in God saying, I'm going to display your sin. Your sin is going to be put on display. And he does not allow his children, his people, to sin and get away with it. He's going to put it on display. Something will happen that will draw it out and make it become public. And like I say, it depends on how uh, visual, visual, visible you are in the kingdom, depending on how many people. If you're... If you only have a handful of people that you affect, then that handful of friends are going to know your sin. If you're a pastor of a huge church, then your whole church plus whoever else you reach out to is going to know about your sin that you're trying to keep hidden, which is why it's important for us to come and say, God, I, am, I have sinned. I've done wrong. Help me get victory over this and, and turn to him and repent because then you've dealt with it. You put it under the blood of Christ and it can be, but it has to be meant, just like everything else. It can't just be the words. It has to be meant. God, I truly am confessing that this is my sin and that I am repenting of it. And this is true. It says in, in the New Testament, it says, be sure your sins will find you out. Jesus said that your sins will be shouted from the housetops. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a phrase that goes all through the scriptures that we cannot hide our sin. God is not going to let us look righteous to the world when, we're, when our heart is full of sin. He's going to bring it out. He's going to call us, number one, to repent and get rid of it. And if we do that, then, then we're okay if we totally get rid of it. But if we are just trying to hide it and say, well, this is who I am. I'm just going to have this sin in my life. God will, God will bring it out. And the problem is usually... What ends up happening with sin is it demands more and more and eventually will come out just because we get careless because we need so much of it. The person who's into pornography has to keep climbing the ladder of pornography to, to get more and more thrill out of it. They have to go to the, the more debased and more debased and eventually it'll come out. And usually it'll come out with some kind of action that they've done. If you're into alcohol and drugs, you, you, know, you get a tolerance to them and eventually have to keep giving more and more. But there's always this, this starts out with this thrill and to get, chase that thrill, you end up having to do more of whatever the sin is because all sin has that same effect on it. it. The same level does not thrill. It has to be more of or deeper into it at any sin and eventually it will come out. And if it's not repented and, and repented of. 
And this is what God's saying. I'm going to, I'm going to put you on display. My people Israel, I've, I've done so much with you. I've tried to protect you. I've tried to keep you. Now I'm going to put you on display. I'm going to kick you out of your land for, for 490 years is where they're going to be kicked out of the land for. So, or 70 years, excuse me, this time. And then when they do it again in, in Jerusalem and after Jesus' crucifixion, they're out, of the, they're out of their country for uh, 1,870-some years. You know, it's, it's a lot longer. And, but God says, your sin has a payment that's due, and I'm going to put it on display. And this is something we as Christians have to make sure. We keep short accounts with God. And God, I, I'm confessing my sin. Help me get victory over it. Help me repent. And otherwise, God will put it on display. This is the fact that he's getting here. And we say, you know, look at who he puts it in. You know, those, you, those that you like, those you hate. <laughs> you know, everybody that you've committed that whoredom with, I'm going to put you on display with everybody. And it, sometimes that's the seriousness of the level of discipline we will get. And the, worse, the more holds a sin has in our life, the more God will put it on display to get it out of our life. Because he understands sometimes embarrassment will work as well as any other, yeah. other way to get us back. Now, embarrassment can either drive you to God or further away from God. But God understands that sometimes that's what it takes. That uh, if they're lifted up and exposed, then eventually they'll come back to him if they're his children. And here he's trying to do, say, I'm, I'm going to put you on open display. Verse 38 says, And I will judge you as women that break wedlock and shed blood are judged. I will give your, your blood in fury and jealousy. And I will also give into your hand you into their hand, and they shall throw down your eminent places and shall break down your high places. They shall strip you also of your clothes and take your fair jewels and leave you naked and bare. So we look at this and God's saying, that they would be treated just like anybody else that had sex out of wedlock in this and his by his laws that meant death all right and in many countries it's always been the penalty is was death or at least ostracizing in some places but he says but if we look at what he says he's going to return them back to what they were when he found them at the beginning of the chapter he says I will give you into your hand, they will tear you down your eminent places, they will, shall break down your high places and strip you of your clothes and shall take your fair jewels and leave you naked and bare. If you remember at the beginning of the story, he found, he found the child naked and bare in the pool of blood that nobody cleaned, cleaned up after the birth. And he says, I picked you up and I clothed you and I cleaned you up, I salted you, I, I lifted you up. And now he says, you've rejected me so bad, I'm just... He's basically saying, I'm going to let, you them, let them return you back to where you started with nothing. And, you know, and God is looking for us in the same fact. He lifts us up. He elevates us in the, in, in the spiritual realm. But if we're going to belittle it, he would rather see us be stripped of everything and be humbled so that we will enter into the spiritual world with humility and position than to be thinking that we're something that we're not. And this is something we have to understand. Jesus said that to be great in the kingdom of God is to be the servant of all. And yet somehow when you start getting elevated in the, in your, in, in the, spirit, in the spiritual realm on this world, 
a lot of times people get proud and say, look at me, I, I, deserve, I deserve the treatment that I'm getting. No, you're being blessed greatly to have that kind of treatment. But you still need to be a servant. And the question is, what does it mean to be a servant? I know some people that they, they will try to be a servant so that they look like they're something important. Or they'll try to be a servant so they can get some title. Well, if that's the case, either one of those is the case, you've got your reward on earth. You know, we serve because we love. We serve because we desire to treat others and lift them up. My greatest goal is to see people grow in Christ. And whatever that takes for me to be able to do to help them grow in Christ, that's what I want. If that means that I spend all my time doing nothing but teaching, that's great. If it means that I help them learn to live, that's that's good. Paul told, the, told the, the church, follow me as I follow Christ. And, look at you, and we look at this. How do we live? Do we live a lifestyle that we want people to follow the way we live? Or are we living a lifestyle that is, well, while, while you're looking at me, I'll try to be as good as I can. But if you saw me behind closed doors, you'd see a totally different person. Yeah. Jesus walked with the disciples for four years. And they got to see how he handled all the situations of the day-to-day -day situations. And this is what is so important as a Christian. How do we live our life in front of others in a consistent manner? Usually we can look at our kids and say, did I live a Christ-honoring Christ life? Now it's not an absolute truth. Some kids will not follow God even if you led the right but in general, if you're living a godly life in front of them on a 24 basis and you're doing mostly the right things in, in the spiritual realm, it'll show. One of the things I loved about my dad was when he came home, he was studying the Bible most of the time. If I asked him a question, it, it was, the answer was almost always going to be, let's find out what the Bible says. Okay, that was the example that I had. My dad wasn't just a Christian on Sunday morning. He was a Christian all the time. At least I tried to be that way with my kids. I wanted my kids to see a study. And I wanted them to see that Christianity was a 365-day-a-year activity, 24-7. Not just, here's my, here I am Christian on Sunday morning. Sunday afternoon, I'll be whatever I want. Sunday night, I'll be back to being a Christian. No, it needs to be something that is lived out in front of people all the time and that's where the impact of our life really will affect people when I'm at work I'm a Christian when I'm in church I'm a Christian when I'm at, on the ball field I'm a Christian and I'll tell you right now that's probably one of the hardest places in my lifetime to be a Christian was when I was on a ball field because I'd be ultra competitive and if somebody did something stupid I let them know about it most of the time and I had a hard time staying Christian on a ball field <laughs> because of how competitive I was <laughs> And I would oftentimes have to get done at the end of a game and really go back around and apologize to a lot of people for, for my actions when, it, when I would play, especially volleyball. I'm very competitive when it comes to volleyball. I'm pretty competitive in softball, but when it comes to volleyball, I was very competitive and, and hardcore. But our Christianity needs to be something that we're living all the time because that's when it'll draw people. That is when we're truly discipling those around us. When they look at, and they say, at us and say, your life is, for some people, if you get saved later in your life, they look at you and say, man, your life is totally different than it used to be. 
may not understand it, I may not even like it, but you're totally different than what you used to be. And that still has an impact. The, the example that I've uh, shared with you when I first moved to Arizona and I got caught in a speed trap you know, that I didn't know about and driving the church van with a whole van full of teenagers. You know, but they looked at the way I reacted to the police officer and reacted to the ticket and it really said something to them. Because I said, well, I didn't know the speed limit changed, but I deserve the ticket I have, and I was very respectful, and it opened doors for that entire weekend to be able to open, to talk to these young people about God. Because they saw something that was totally different than what they were used to seeing. You know, how do we react to authority? How do we react to different things in our life that, that call for a spiritual walk? Everything we do has impact within the scripture for living with Christ. Everything. How do we, you know, one of the things I've shared with you, as a Christian, I love to talk to people about marriage and how long they've been married. You know, and what bothers me the most when I'm around Christians is, well, you've been married for 10 years, 20 years. Wow, what a long time. I'm going, that's not a Christian way of thinking. That's the world's way of thinking. If we're thinking from a Christian biblical perspective, you get married and you're supposed to stay together. I think it's great when I meet all these people that have been married 60, 70 years, celebrating their 60, 70th anniversary. And that pretty much only happens in the church. I mean, it does occasionally outside the church. But if you want to find people who have long marriages, church is usually where you're going to find them. Why? Because they got married under the right reason with the right plan to stay together. And... When I, and I remember so many times when I would get out of the world, people go, oh, you've been married for 15 years. Wow, that's amazing. I go, now we're just newlyweds. We're just getting started. I'm never worried about what the world's going to have and what the world's going to have problems with. You know, they'll make fun of what we believe. They always do. They make fun when, when we as Christians say we believe the Bible and that we believe that the world is young and that, that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in it. They'll make fun of that. They'll go, well, you're brainwashed. You don't believe in science. Well, I believe, I, I love science with a great passion. I just don't believe the garbage that they teach in the schools, which isn't science. We have to keep this in mind. If what we're trying to do is be liked by the world, then we're going to be silent about a lot of things in this, in, that, that we believe. If our goal is to be liked by God and to produce what he wants us to produce, which will make us an at enmity with the world, then we're going to speak what God says. And, and we will not be liked by the world. Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace. I've come to divide. You know, the truth divides families. The truth divides people. Many times when Jesus spoke, people left. Jesus wasn't worried about numbers. He was worried about truth. Well, he wasn't even, worry is not even the right word. He wasn't concerned about numbers. He was just concerned about getting the truth out. And if people left because they didn't like the truth, that was their problem, not his. And we as Christians have to have that same mentality. Not to be harsh, not to be mean, not to be cruel. You can say, if you love somebody, you can say some pretty hard things to somebody and if you truly love them and, let, and they will know that, you're, that they're loved. You know, and it's very true that we can do that. I've, I've done it many times with people because I care so much about them and it comes across in a gentle manner instead of a harsh, condemning manner. And you can say the same thing to somebody with love or without love, and it would be, and it comes across wrong without love. It really does.
You speak truth and it challenges people, there are going to be people who are going to go, well, you can't, that's so narrow, I can't believe it, and it'll divide families. If they're not truly all, all godly in their family, it'll divide families. It'll divide individuals, it'll divide groups, because the truth is always going to find somebody who doesn't want to believe it. I, when, I, when I call sin a sin in this church, there are going to be people who are not going to like it and may, may leave and not come back. And I know a few that have done that. But I cannot say that, I cannot compromise what God's word says to try to fill this building up with a bunch of people but not speak truth would be a waste of time. And I probably could. I could probably avoid saying things that would drive people, you know, that would be, and we fill the place up, you know, but that would not be a, a godly church at that time. It would just be a group of people all having fun together or whatever. But God is, God is going to make us choose. Do I believe his word? Do I believe what he says is true? And it's sometimes hard to do. It's sometimes very hard to look at the, the word and say, God, it is true and, and change our life. The more we do it, the more we walk in it, the easier it gets. But especially when you first start studying the word of God and you start reading things that go directly against things that you believed all your life or that you do, it's tough. It's yeah. It's tough. They, also, they shall also bring up a company against you, and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords. They shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgment upon you in the sight of many women. And I will cause you to cease from playing the harlot, and you also shall give no hire any more. So, so I will make my fury toward you to rest, and my jealousy shall depart from you, and I will be quiet, and it will be, and will no more angry. So we look at this, he's saying, they're going to come, they're going to stone her, stone her with stones, which was the punishment for adultery, with stoning. He goes, they're going to burn your, burn your property. They're going to, and this is a vivid picture of them going into captivity. Okay, they're losing everything. And it says, I will cause you to cease from playing the harlot, and you shall no more give hire anymore. This is what we were saying earlier. God will shout out our sins from the housetop to cause us to quit doing it, to bring us to a place where we're so embarrassed, so much in pain from what we've been doing that if we're truly his child, we're going to turn away from it and say, okay, God, I, I think I've got the picture. Have you ever had one of those moments in your life when you say, God, I've got the picture. I, I understand now. I've had it on several occasions. God, I fought you long enough. I've, been mis I've misbehaved long enough. I'm now going to turn away and pay attention. And it says, then uh, verse 42, So will I make my fury toward you to rest, and my jealousy shall depart from you, and I will be quiet and will, no, will be no more angry. God's jealousy. God is jealousy, jealous. And the word jealous in the Hebrew has this idea of he will allow no rival for his attention, which is good jealousy. This is the way that a husband or wife should be when they come across somebody really flirting, and I mean really flirting to, after their, their spouse. There should be a jealousy that rises up. Not that the, not that the partner's even going to re, you know, respond, but if you get tempted long enough, hard enough, you probably will fall. And that jealousy should come up and go, no, that's not going to happen. Now, to be jealous of nothing is, another, is the opposite side where it gets really bad. And I've seen people that are that bad. You know, 
No, my wife can't go out with the girls. She might meet some guy. No, no, no. You know, that's, that's being way too far, way too jealous. Now, if, if they're going out with people of the opposite sex, now we've got another problem altogether because that's not a good place to be. Uh, the vice president caught a lot of flack on, uh, on, on the media recently because he would not go out even with other workers of the opposite sex by themselves because he wanted no appearance of evil and he wanted no temptation. And it's a good move to do that, to not be alone with somebody of the opposite sex when you're married. It's a very dumb thing to do <laughs> and, you know, because relationships never stay stable. They either grow or they go away completely. And especially between male and female, they will escalate over time and it starts out platonic and just a friendship, but it ends up, most of these relationships end up being where affairs come from. Most people don't go out and say, I think I'm going to go have an affair today. Now, there are people that do that, but most affairs don't start that way. They start with the innocent, well, we're just going out to a business lunch together, you know, once a week, then two or three times a week, and who knows where else it gets into it. It escalates. And... He's saying, you're not going to be that. And he goes, I'm not my jealousy. You're going to come back to where you're supposed to be in my, in my possession. And I love this because God is not getting rid of Israel. You know, the picture that Hosea gives us, if you've ever read the book of Hosea, God tells Hosea, go out and marry a prostitute. You know, and then he has to keep buying her back. And the, and the purpose of this is God saying, now you... You share people, you share with Israel what you're doing because you're the picture of me buying them back over and over and over again. You know, I could just picture Hosea's mom and dad when he comes back, you know, mom and dad, God told me to buy, uh, marry a prostitute and they're probably looking at him like, what, 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 what drugs have you been using the last, uh, last week, you know, to make me go, go off the deep end? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Where's all your money? But I spend it buying her back, right? Yeah, you know, he definitely had to keep buying her back. But God says, my jealousy will be quiet. My anger will be gone because you will have turned back to me. He's, he bought back. He had to buy us back. And the cost of buying us back was extreme. Jesus gave his life with all the punishment. Verse 43, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have fretted me in all these things, behold, therefore, I will recompense my way upon you, says the Lord God, and you shall not commit this lewdness above all your abominations. So he's saying, you haven't remembered. You have not remembered where you came from. This is something that we need to do as Christians, is to look back and say, where did I start? Not with fondness, not with even great desire, but Man, I, I used to be here, and now God has, has me here. And this is what I share with people. We always want to be looking at, where am I today? Am I further along in my spiritual walk? How do I do that? I kind of remember some of what was going on. I remember how bad things used to be. Now, if I'm remembering them as good things, I've got, I've got a trouble. I've got trouble if I look back in my life and say, well, that was what, those were the good old days. I had whatever. And I've met Christians who live in the, the good old days before they were saved. They were the good old days. Everything, everything was, and I'm going, well, why did you get saved if they were so good? 
You know, why did you come to God if, that, if those were the, really the good days? Why did you come to God? Why did you leave, leave them? The bad news is we have this excellent ability to remember only the good things and, and forget the bad, which is a good thing for us. But how many times have you maybe gone back to try something that you thought you remembered as being good? Now, I love restaurant management. I, there's lots of things I love about restaurant manage, management. There's lots of things I hated about restaurant management. When I first moved back to Kingman, I went back to restaurant management because there was nothing else to do at that time. I very quickly remembered all the bad things about restaurant management. Now, even though I'm good at it and, and love the job, I very quickly remembered all the things I didn't like about it. And I was very happy when I could get out of that job into something else. But we, we tend to do that, and we tend to do that with our sin oftentimes. We remember the, the things that were good about sin, and we want to be careful because sin always has us something that is good, otherwise we wouldn't do it. Now, and we talked about, I heard, some, heard a pastor talking about, well, if we know that we shouldn't overeat, and he goes, just imagine if you ate a donut and all of a sudden instantly six, pounds, six ounces of uh, fat popped out on your side, you wouldn't be eating donuts very, very long if instantly the, the fat turned into fat on your body, you would very quickly not do it. Uh, we don't do, and that's the way sin is, you know, it, we're, the effects hit longer, which is the same thing we have in, in our day. I mean, we think back, you know, when we were young, uh, some people think back way, you know, people will go back in the 50s when it was so great. Well, the 50s had lots of problems in the 50s. It was, you know, uh, the 40s had problems, the 30s had problems, the 20s had problems, the 17th century had problems. You know, no matter where you go back to, there's nothing new under the sun. Every, every group has had their problems, and they look back fondly back. Grandpa's always looking back. Well, back when I was young, none of this stuff happened. Well, yeah, but it probably wasn't quite as bad, but still bad things happened. Yeah, so... Well, the, well, it has nothing to do with that. I'm just saying what ends up happening is we look, we need to live in today's time anyway. Don't forget about the past and where we came from, but we need to live in today. Don't, it isn't that we don't make plans for the future, but we live in today. Because either direction gets us into too much. If I'm planning always for the future, I miss today completely. How many people have laid, laid money aside, laid money aside, laid money aside, and someday when I retire, we're going to take the trip, we're going to do this, we're going to buy, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and then when they get ready to retire, they die. And somebody else gets to use everything they've laid up. Okay, and that's the extreme, obviously, but you can get so wrapped up in the future that we forget to live today. Many people get so wrapped up in the past where they can't forgive themselves and, and they think their best days are beyond, you know, past because it, you know, it can go either direction. I remember all the good things I used to do or you know, I just can't forgive myself for the things and they live in the past and totally lose today. Moving on, moving into the future. What was the story around 
off the top of my head, I don't know, remember the context he was in, it was in one of his epistles. But in essence, he's, God said that his name is I am. Okay, he didn't say my name is I was, or I will be, I am. I'm the God of this moment that you are living in right this moment. He is also the God of the was and, and, and the future, but he is now. He is now. And we've got to keep that in mind because the only thing that we can live in and control is now. If I'm wasting my time if I try to live in the future or the past because I'm not there and, and I'm not guaranteed the future anyway and I can't change the past. And I can barely impact the future. I can make some plans, on it, but even my plans may not happen because I don't have full control of the future. The only thing I have that I am in control of, and that may be an illusion, also is this moment. The moment that I'm in, and even that is the moment, when I say this moment, it's already gone. So it's beyond, so I can only take and make my decisions for this moment that I'm living in. Will I talk to this person, yes or no? And by the time I made my decision, it's gone. All right. Will I do this for God, yes or no? Will I, will I be obedient or disobedient? I only have my choices right in the moment that I live in to do right or wrong, to, to think correctly or think incorrectly, to, to act spiritually or act, act like the world. But it all comes down to this moment. This moment that I'm living in. And if I'm dwelling on the past, regretting my past, or, or even... Uh, enjoying my past. I mean, whichever way, it can both be bad. Because if I'm totally regretting my past, I, then I, and I'm frozen in the, in the moment because I'm always worried about messing up. Or if I'm totally enjoying the past, I'm, well, why should I live? There's nothing left more to live with. All my good days are past. <laughs> a lot of older people get there. Yeah. yeah, let's wait till tomorrow. But that's a good spiritual way to be because if, if I'm totally concerned about what might happen, most of the time what, might ha- what we're worrying about doesn't happen anyway. So we wasted a lot of effort trying to think of how I'm going to solve problems that never happen. Now, if there are some serious things, and there are some serious things that have to be looked at. If you're, if you're an engineer and you're trying to design something, you have to consider the what, what might happen you know, and, and, fix, and build things against that. If you're working on an airplane like you did, there's certain things you have to do to take care of the what ifs. You know? And there's certain times when a what if scenario can be a good activity. But if that's all our life is, <laughs> Well, what am I going to do? It, it might rain tomorrow. Okay, what am I going to do if it rains? It, it, might, it might snow tomorrow. What am I going to do if it snows? It might, it, it might thunder and lightning. What am I going to do? It might hail. It, you know, and if we're thinking of all the different things that might happen, that we have no control over whatsoever? So it goes back to that one scripture, we can't add a cubit to our height. Without a worry, we can't add a cubit to our height. We can't, we can't, grow, we can't add a hair to our head. You know, it's... Or a, day, or a day unto your life. And that's really what it is all about. Am I going to live in the moment that I'm living in? Because I can tell you, in my lifetime, it took me a while to learn how to live in the moment. How many times have I missed something because I wasn't living in the moment? 
How many times have you missed the opportunity to, to give a witness to somebody because you're so worried about what might happen that you're totally oblivious to what's going on around you? No. We need to learn to be able to look around and say, God, what are you doing? Help me live in this moment and show me the divine opportunity you're putting in my path. And I can tell you many times I've gotten to the end of the day and realized, man, I should have said this to this person or I should have helped this person, but my mind wasn't on the moment that I was in to be able to help, to be able to speak the, speak the word in season. Almost, every, almost the entire world is in that ballpark. You're either worried about what you're going to do or what you should have done in the past instead of living in the moment that you're living in. And the world definitely is there for the most part. And unfortunately, a large amount of Christians are in that place where they're not living in the moment. Listening to God, the just shall walk by faith. You know, are we walking by faith? Are we listening to God to say, God, what is it you want me to do? What do you want me to do, not 10 years from now, but right this moment, God, who do you want me to talk to? Who, who am I supposed to minister to? And it is very easy to miss those opportunities because we're so captivated in what we want to do. And I've, I've shared with people, that's the way... It, I'm getting better, but it's the way I am when I go shopping. I'm there to do one thing, and that's to get in and pick up what I want and get out. I'm not even, when I go shopping, I'm not living in the moment. I'm looking at get this over with as quick as possible and get on with life because shopping to me is an interruption to life. And that's not a good place to be because I know I've missed opportunities to share because my, I've, I've shared with you many times. My wife will be ministering to somebody while I go get the food, and I get back, and okay, you ready to go? Now, she's been talking to the same person for 20 minutes. I'm, I'm ready to go. Because I'm ready to get on with life. You know, and I'm literally serious when I say that. To me, shopping is an interruption in life. Something you have to do to put food on the table or put something in their house. Not, not a part of life. It's, I'm getting better, but I still have that mentality. And we have to be careful. We can miss a lot of what's going on around us by always focusing somewhere else. And that's why Blackaby said, when we look around and find out what God's doing and join him, not tell God, come and join me with what I'm doing. And many, many times we're saying, God, I'm over here, come and help me. And God's saying, I'm over here, where are you? Yeah. This, I, I've said, I, I really want you over here, but you're not, you're not here. And we need to be in that place where we're saying, God, I want to serve you. I want to serve you. Show me how to do it. And as long as we think that our life is our own, we won't be serving him. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and to worship you. We ask that you guide and lead us as we go forward. Show us what it is you would have us do. Open our eyes that we will live in the now, then the moment, and, and meet up with the divine appointments that you give us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.